Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The battleship admirals who came from a tradition of these massive surface vessels with powerful guns. In general, they hated some mariners because here they were in their impudent little boats with uh, these very cheap weapons called torpedoes, and they could sneak around under the water and could actually do them great harm. You're listening to Reuters War College, a discussion of the world in conflict, focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt, and with us today is Ian Ballantyne, a former journalist and a current naval historian. He covered conflict in the 90s and currently edits Warships magazine and has spent more time on more warships than anyone else that I know. He's here today to walk us through the history of the world's stealthiest naval vessels, the submarine. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. That's my pleasure. All right, so you just finished writing a book about submarines, and you called it The Deadly Trade. Uh, why that title? Uh, well, there's a famous uh, poem by Rudyard Kipling, written about a century ago, about the trade of submariners, and it, it makes reference to the deadly trade and calls it one-eyed death. And it's famous in the Royal Navy Submarine Service as uh, as, as a piece of work, and they, they do call uh, their pursuit the trade in the Royal Navy. So that's where that kind of comes from. And I added the deadly bit because I wanted to convey the fact that it's lethal not only to the people they uh, stalk and attack, but also to themselves, really, to submariners. So it's a risky and a deadly trade. Are there higher casualty rates on submarines than other naval vessels? Um, I would say uh, it depends. Certainly the U-boat service in the Second World War suffered 75% or 70% casualties, and 28,000 German submariners died, and 5,000 were captured out of a force of about 40,000. So that was a huge and heavy death rate. Uh, and then, of course... Uh, the Royal Navy and the other navies did suffer as well, but they weren't in the same kind of role, so they, they weren't placing themselves in, in harm's way in quite the same way. There was certainly a high casualty rate, but I think it's the U-boat service of the Second World War that probably suffered the worst casualty rate because they had to go in and attack these very heavily defending convoys, whereas I think on the Allied side, the, the, uh, the German Navy and German commerce wasn't really there to the same extent, and the Japanese... Navy wasn't quite as efficient uh, as the Royal Navy at uh, killing submariners or sinking submarines. What were the differences between those two services that made one more deadly? It was just the Germans were more offensive than the British? No, I mean, the, the thing that I was often overlooked um, is that 
the Royal Navy Submarine Service did not have the targets. It didn't have the uh, shipping to sink. It didn't have the convoys to attack. So its most active uh, theatre during the Second World War was in the Mediterranean, where the objective was for Malta-based submarines to cut the supply lines from Italy to Rommel's Africa Corps. And those submarine forces based at Malta did suffer quite a high casualty rate because there, I would say, in that arena, they were operating in an environment more akin to that faced by the U-boat force in the Atlantic. So they did suffer high casualty rates. But I think it was the sustained nature of the Battle of the Atlantic and the fact that the U-boats were having to go up against a very, very complex, certainly by 1944, 1943, a very complex and experienced set of uh, U-boat killers, British, American and Canadian, uh, that, that increased the casualties. So it was a, a pretty deadly trade wherever you pursue it. But I think, for the, as I say, for the U-boat force in World War Two in the Atlantic, I think that was the deadliest of them all. Well, let me back out and ask a big picture question. And I think that we've, we've kind of been answering it already, but I just want to drill down. What makes submarines so important, especially in modern day? Stealth is a very important aspect of it. You don't know where they are. They could be anywhere. So that deters any navy's surface ships from going to certain areas because they don't know if there's a, a submarine out there. I think they can sneak into territorial waters and gather intelligence and uh, other information. And they can also land forces, and you don't really know they're there. So I think they're very valuable from that point of view um, in terms of conventional warfare. And they can attack shipping without warning, if need be. But I think, of course, you know, in the modern era, the the battleships of today are the ballistic missile submarines, which have a a world-ending capability. So, I mean, that makes them truly formidable. But that's today's situation rather than the past, obviously. And what's the earliest known instance of an underwater boat? Uh, it goes back a lot longer than maybe some people think. I mean, I think the, the question probably would be, what's the earliest known instance of a viable underwater boat? Because I think there, was, there were many, many years, if not centuries, when there were non-viable boats. Uh, but certainly the first casualty in uh, what we might call submarining was actually um, in uh, Plymouth Sound in the late... 18th century when a guy called Day drowned when he went down in a a specially converted uh, wooden vessel that basically discovered pressure which crushed it and he died in the the late 18th century. But prior to that all sorts of people had played around with ideas for submarines or submersibles. You know Leonardo da Vinci and um, Alexander the Great was said to have gone down inside a glass diving bell and and there were other people as well. A guy called Matthew Bourne in England, who was a, a mathematician, but also a former gunnery officer in a, in, a, in a wooden warship. He came up with an idea for putting two rowing boats together, and, but he never actually did it. So I think the, the, the real thing is, when did it become viable? And that, that didn't happen until, in fact, I would say as a weapon of war, until the American Civil War in the 1860s. So that was the first instance of a proper offensive submarine. And what was that submarine like, that, that Civil War submarine? That was the Hunley, which was basically um, a metal cigar-shaped thing. I think she was actually made out of a, a tapered boiler, and uh, she was man-powered and had a spar torpedo, a charge on the end of a long lance, and she attacked uh, a Union, and a northern warship called the Housatonic, and managed to sink her, but in the process sank herself. So the Hunley was the first ever. A submersible war vessel, but she didn't survive that effort. 
Alright, so coming off the heels of the Civil War, we look at World War One, uh, And you tell us a little bit about the submarines during that time, and who was uh, Admiral Jackie Fisher? Yeah, Jackie Fisher was uh, was the first sea lord in the Royal Navy, and he was the boss of uh, the Royal Navy in uh, the period just before the First World War. And he was a man who believed in getting rid of old-fashioned ways and old-fashioned uh, warships and introducing new ones. And he introduced Dreadnought, the first ever all-big gun battleship. But he was also keen on submarines, and he was he did see that submarines would have a great effect on warfare. But I think even he thought that submarines would just be coastal defence vessels and protect harbours. I don't think he saw them. I don't think anybody before World War One saw the submarine as a commerce uh, attacker. Uh, I think they saw submarines as subservient to the battle fleet. And it was only as the war evolved and uh, the fighting bogged down on land that more emphasis was put on using, for the Germans, on, on using their U-boats to try and starve the Allies, uh, the Allied side, into coming to some kind of terms and ending the war in their favour. So I, I think prior to World War One, there was not a great opinion in certainly the upper ranks of any navy about what submarines could achieve. Right. The words I see, um, I think, in in copy about your book is that this idea was derided and loathed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the battleship admirals who came from a tradition of these massive surface vessels with powerful guns. They they absolutely hated, in general, they hated submariners because here they were in their impudent little boats with uh, these very cheap weapons called torpedoes, and they could sneak around under the water uh, and basically sink a battleship, potentially. And it outraged the traditional battleship admirals that these uh, cheap little vessels with, with torpedoes could actually do them great harm. So they were very suspicious and uh, they didn't like submariners because submariners were considered not to be gentlemen, really, because they were in smelly submarines and they smelled themselves of either vomit or um, oil. And uh, they they just looked down upon submarines and their crews as being almost like filthy pirates, really. So in in a way, or I guess in all the important ways, the, the history of the submarine kind of fits neatly into the history of World War One in general, right? Whereas there's new emergent technology kind of disrupting traditional warfare yeah i mean the um i was thinking about this the other night i was thinking about the casualty rate and the the, the war on land and and whether you know the futility of of uh, the war on land and and whether or not in fact the submarine actually prolonged the war in a way because the german army high command realized that they couldn't really break the stalemate on the western front and they looked to the U-boat force at least once during the war to try and achieve the sort of breakthrough and victory at sea by destroying the trade of, of Britain primarily uh, that they couldn't achieve on land. And perhaps if the submarine hadn't offered that idea of, uh, of achieving victory via the U-boat and uh, war against commerce, perhaps the Germans might have thought, well, we'll, we'll try and come to terms a bit quicker. The submarine came along and evolved, and then it, it seemed to offer this magic bullet, this silver bullet to the Germans that they could uh, win the war and get the best terms, I think is the best way to describe it, in any kind of negotiated settlement. In fact, that proved to be an illusion. Did the Germans, it seems like, just from our conversation, they really pioneered the the use of this of this new weapon. Do you think that's accurate? Uh, I don't think they pioneered... Uh, the use of, of the new weapon, I think the British and um, 
the US Navy didn't really pay much of a role in terms of submarine warfare in, in the First World War, but certainly the, uh, the British and the Austrians as well, and the Germans, I think they all, they all explored uh, anti, um, anti-shipping tactics. The, the, the British did it in the Dardanelles and also in the Sea of Marmara against the Turks, because their idea to try and win the war was to break through uh, to Constantinople and to, with submarines particularly, to terrify uh, the Turks into capitulating and then send through a battle fleet to cow Constantinople and take Turkey out of the war so that uh, supplies could then get through to Russia to help Russia then prevail upon the Germans on the Eastern Front. So that was the British uh, idea. And, and the, the Royal Navy did sink a lot of shipping in, in, um, in the Sea of Marmara and, uh, and even attacked uh, a, a vessel or vessels in Constantinople Harbour. So the British did do that where they had the opportunity. But the problem, as happened during World War II, was that the Germans if they were to prevail, had to attack the world's biggest merchant fleet, which was the British Merchant Marine. Uh, but there was no uh, reliance on, on sea commerce in the central powers. So there were no targets available. So the war and how submarines were used kind of shaped up to reflect the geography and the strengths of the different nations. So I think they all explored various elements of it. But I think that in terms of what they needed to do for their nations, that dictated the kind of tactics and the kind of war they pursued. All right, Ian, I'm going to pause here for a break. You are listening to Reuters War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. We're on with Ian Ballantyne. We're talking about his new book, The Deadly Trade and the History of Submarine Warfare. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, thank you for listening to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. We are on with Ian Ballantyne talking about his new book, The Deadly Trade and the History of Submarine Warfare. So, Ian, right before the break, you said something that kind of stuck out to me and was interesting, and that is that part of the British plan was to sow fear with these weapons. Are submarines thought of as a scary weapon? Is this something to be... I'm talking pre-nukes, obviously, but these were something that people were frightened of? Yeah, I think certainly during the First World War, they were seen as uh, underhand and also, I suppose, I think it was an American president referred to them as beastly. You know, they were seen as a terrible, terrible development, and they were a weapon of fear. Whether that, that was borne out in reality is another thing, but yeah, they certainly were seen as kind of like undersea devils by many people. And between the wars, there was great effort, certainly from the British, 
who had the most to lose because they had the most battleships to get rid of submarines. And certainly there was a feeling, I think Woodrow Wilson was very anti-submarine. Well, he was very anti-submarine. And there was a feeling that, that there was something not right about them. And certainly before the First World War, Winston Churchill was of the opinion that anybody that used submarines against uh, maritime commerce, against uh, merchant ships, would be should have the worst things visited upon them, including pestilence and plague, and any tactic was justifiable if people used submarines against, you know, in essence, the civilian population and, and what kept it alive. It's, it's, it's funny when you talk about it that way. It reminds me of the way people talk about drones now. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, if we see that. Do you kind of see that as a, as a military historian and a naval historian more specifically, that any time a new weapon comes up, people are kind of frightened of it and then it gets settled into use? I don't know. We're in a we're, we've paused, haven't we? we? We went from World War One to World War Two, and then the use of the submarine to its fullest extent stopped, and then we haven't really seen that for the past um, seventy odd years. So, I think submarines would still be viewed as terrible weapons, but I think people are now more familiar, thanks to fiction and factual books and movies and that, with the fact they've got human beings in them, and they're not just these terrible devils under the sea. Yeah. Well, speaking of World War II. That's the bulk of your book, right? Is it, I think you told me that three-sevenths of it is World War II? <laughs> yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's, difficult to, it's four parts, and part one is um, uh, ancient times uh, right through to, I would say, uh, 1914. Part two is World War One. Part three is World War Two, and then part four at the end is uh, from 1945 to right up to today. So, yeah, I guess so, because there was so much going on. Was World War II kind of the golden age of submarine conflict, and why, if if that's true? Yeah, I think World War II was when it went uh, truly global, and I think that's the reason that it um, it took up so much in the book as well. I think also the Battle of the Atlantic was so vast in World War II; it was just so complex. There were so many convoys. It was it was different to World War One. In World War One. Um, anti-submarine warfare was very much in its infancy and was in fact not very effective. It was uh, convoys that saved uh, the Allied side, uh, the, the custom of convoying. But in World War II, I think it was needed so much more from co-breaking through to sonar, ASDIC, you know, and tactics and everything. So it was so much more complicated. Um, and also, we had the war in, in the Pacific, and I think that... That war that the U.S. Navy waged against Japan was uh, a most incredible campaign, and it brought Japan to its knees, really. And who do you think was the dominant sub-power during World War II? The most efficient and, I would say, the most effective practitioners uh, were probably the U.S. Navy, I would say. But that it always depends upon your opponent. Um, it's a bit like um, Trump's. You know, If you try and trump in, in card games, you try and trump the opponent. And if your opponent doesn't trump you or your opponent can't match you and exceed you technologically and tactically, then you're going to get the upper hand. And so I think the U.S. Navy was able, due to failings in Japanese technology and tactics, to achieve a dominance with its submarines that wasn't possible. Even though the Germans had more U-boats, a bigger force, they did not achieve the same. In the end, they didn't achieve the same effect because the Allies... Uh, were so much more efficient at fighting back. So I think the U.S. Navy certainly achieved an amazing um, effect in the Pacific, but I think it, the opponent was that much weaker. 
What made uh, the Japanese technology and tactics weaker? What was it about their subs and the way they used them? I not not this this well the submarines is one thing, but their their um, escorts and their uh, their technology in terms of anti-submarine warfare against American submarines was not on the same level as uh, it wasn't developed properly. There was rivalry uh, between the different factions in the Japanese military that prevented the aircraft and the technology and the people from being used to the greatest effect against the American submarines. But the submarines themselves, the Japanese submarines themselves, were very impressive and they were a very professional force. But they, this, the Japanese submarine captains were driven slightly mad on occasion by the fact that their, their bosses would not allow the Japanese submarine captains to use more than a certain number of torpedoes against a certain number of ships. And they also directed the Japanese submarine force, uh, Japanese submarines, to concentrate on attacking enemy warships. And even when advised by the Germans that the best way to affect the uh, American war effort was to sink uh, oil tankers and the rest of it, the, the Japanese mindset was that that wasn't really honorable or worthy and that the best way to, to destroy the American war effort was to sink carriers and battleships. So there were all sorts of rigid rules set down which prevented Japanese submarine captains from using their initiative um, in terms of causing damage. After World War II, when I think about submarines, I think about nukes. Who was the first person to put a nuke on a submarine? Well, that was obviously the U.S. Navy with Nautilus. She was the first, what we'd call an SSN, the first attack submarine with nuclear power. That was in the late 50s, uh, the mid, sorry, the mid-50s. So uh, America got the lead there. The Russians weren't far behind. And uh, so America is definitely from the off um, on the cutting edge there. So I think America was... Uh, predominant, really, during the Cold War period. And right up to today, it's, it's the same today. Uh, that, that begs a question, actually, is when did, uh, you know, talking about World War II, we left out Russia, and when did Russia get submarines? Well, Russia's had submarines uh, for a long time. I mean, we're talking centuries. But it's the effective uh, development and utilization of them that was that was perhaps elusive for the Russians. And also the mindset in World War II was that the Russian Navy, the Soviet Navy, was subordinate to the land forces. And so they, they had submarines. They had a very large submarine force, but it wasn't necessarily used as efficiently as it could be. And sometimes, um, you know, they did achieve what you might call success, but it, uh, they didn't wage any kind of coordinated anti-commerce war because, of course, there weren't the German targets. So they suffered from the same handicap as the British. They didn't have the same types of targets. But they were, I would say that the Russian submarine force really came into its own after World War II. And then it grew and grew and became quite an awesome force quite quickly after World War II. And what kind of missions and things were were they doing during the, uh, you know, during the Cold War? What was the point of having these submarines? Other, th I mean, obviously there's the nuclear triad, right? Yeah. But other than that, what kind of missions are these things doing? The concept for the, certainly in the, the 50s, the 40s and the 50s, for the, the very large by then uh, Russian submarine force, which was primarily you know, diesel electric with nuclear submarines coming along uh, not, not long after the Americans, was to, to stage another battle of the Atlantic against the NATO powers to stop the reinforcements from America getting through, as was the standard tactic, I think, throughout the Cold War, to prevent the resupply of the NATO forces in Europe and also 
undermine the ability of American reinforcements to get through. So I think that was that was the main aim in terms of conventional warfare throughout the Cold War. And they did maintain a very large force to do that. And what is the, just out of curiosity, what do we have any idea what the Russian naval forces look like now and what their submarine forces look like? There was a fallow period following the end of the Cold War uh, for, let's say, 10, 15 years where regenerating the submarine force of, of Russia was slow and um, sluggish. But I think in recent years, it's really picked up pace. And there's certainly a big effort in turning out what they call improved kilo-class submarines for the Black Sea Fleet and for the Northern Fleet. That's the fleet based in the Arctic and the fleet obviously based in the Black Sea. And there's going to be six of these new kilo-class submarines that can fire cruise missiles based um, both in the Black Sea and in the Northern Fleet. And those are pretty handy conventional submarines. But the Russians are also building new attack submarines and ballistic missile submarines, and they've, they're regenerating their, their older force, such as the, uh, the Oscar-class uh, guided missile submarines. So there's a huge effort currently underway in regenerating, refitting, and even building new submarines in Russia. What's your sense of the importance of submarines in general to modern war effort? Because it feels like, to me, um, the kind of weapon that we won't really see all of its potential uses until there's a, a, a large-scale conflict. Yeah, I, th I think, what, what hap as, as we know, what happens with war is war accelerates technology and it uh, accelerates the development of things. And, and some sacred cows that you know we think of as being invincible, or, you know, it's a bit of a mixed metaphor. But, I mean, if you look at the battleship uh, in World War II, the battleship survived... Uh, until, let's say, the middle of World War II as the prime um, weapon platform. But then the carrier came along. And so I think the carrier's uh, reign as the supreme vessel on the face of the planet is still uh, happening. But I think in any, if there was any future war where the full scale of uh, naval capability of weaponry was, was unleashed, I think that is when you would see the submarine truly become the dominant uh, player in terms of naval warfare. Because I think by the end of World War II, you were getting towards uh, using what they call the true submarine, not a submersible, what basically is like a torpedo boat that dives, but a true submarine. And that was the Type 21 submarine, which was imperfectly developed by the Nazis, but then and wasn't produced really in, in any number and wasn't really deployed by the Germans. But then the Allies took various examples of the Type 21 submarine and they, they used it to, to evolve diesels and also to create nuclear-powered submarines. So I think what happened at the end of World War II was, was the pause in the use of the submarine and, and to its fullest extent. And if there ever was another major war, I think it's only now you would then see what the true submarine, i.e. a nuclear-powered submarine, and probably the advanced diesel submarines that we have today could do. And I think it would be quite, uh, in terms of conventional war, I think it would be quite devastating and quite terrifying again, really. Can you give us um, an idea of what's on the horizon for submarines? Are we developing any new types, you know, whether in America or Britain or anywhere else in the world? What's the next big evolution of the submarine? Well, I guess the, the next big evolution will be uh, a submarine that can carry a range of drone submarines. 
and and launch them and send them out. I guess that would be the the goal for submarine developers eventually. But certainly at the moment they they're developing what you might call the existing models uh, to a, to the furthest extent they can. So uh, you have um, in in the USA you have the Virginia class SSN that's also a guided missile submarine that can. Uh, embark special forces and do all those sorts of roles. In in Britain, it's the Astute class that again can um, can embark special forces, but has cruise missiles. And in Russia, the new attack submarine is really a guided missile submarine as well, and can do all these different roles. So it's kind of pushing the the conventional design and the conventional concept. But then you've got what we call um, air independent propulsion uh, conventional submarines, which are uh, almost as good as nukes, but they're small. They can't carry the same range of weaponry, and their endurance uh, is limited to probably dive to about a month. You know, they, they, but they are very effective. And those are, are, are diesel submarines that can stay down and, let's say, carry out a transatlantic crossing without needing to surface. In fact, a German submarine has done that. So they, they are pretty formidable. Um, but in terms of radical uh, departures, I think, we won't know for some time whether or not it's viable to have uh, drone submarines that are perhaps operated by or launched by a mother submarine. But I think that will come. Do we have any sense of how well these things see each other in the water? Talking about all this, all the new submarine technology that's kind of emergent, it makes it sound like a large part, like if there's ever another global conflict, um, underwater will be a big theater. Um, and what, what kind of, what kind of, I guess, what kind of submarine countermeasures do submarines carry? Uh, I mean, submarine countermeasures have been around for a while, and I, I'm, I mean, I'm not a huge uh, technical expert on it, but I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's, in World War II, the Germans had um, the ability to fire effervescent pellets that would make noise and bubble, and that would distract sonar, and they could fire out all sorts of other things using. Um, an underwater gun, if you like, to, to distract and confuse the enemy. And so those, those obviously have been developed over the decades into being more efficient. So there are, there are means of throwing a pursuer off, off the path. But I think sonar, um, the ability to listen passively for the enemy, uh, to warn yourself that the enemy is coming, get out of the way, or to, to, to find out where the enemy is and then move in to make a kill yourself that that's that's the main thing and and modern sonars are incredibly powerful and i think submarines are going to be teamed up with a modern equivalent of sosus you know the underwater surveillance system that america had to listen over hundreds if not thousands of miles for uh, russian submarines i think the chinese are establishing something similar in the south china sea and the russians will probably uh, establish their own network up in the arctic so i think submarines are going to be part of a network in a way that they never have been before, but it will still rely on on sonar and uh, detection as not only to kill the enemy but also to protect yourself. I think. All right, I've got one last question for you, sir. Do you think what what effect, if any, will climate change have on submarine conflict? It's mm. <laughs> an interesting question. Um, climate change, what in terms of making the sea warmer or? In what way? Yeah, the the sea sea level rise yeah. and sea warmer. Yeah, especially in the Arctic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the the Arctic is a is, remains a key a key arena. So, I mean, going under the ice and uh, operating under the ice 
did offer uh, unique challenges for the uh, both sides during the Cold War. So I guess if that all frees up and it gets warmer, then it will make submarine operations easier. But um, I, I wonder if it will also affect uh, sonar detection ranges and ability as well, because obviously you hide under a cold layer of water and it's harder for the enemy to find you. So if the seas are less cold, then I suppose it won't have maybe the different layers. But I'm not an expert on that, so I don't... I don't, that's an element of it, a side to it that I, I can't say I'm, I'm well versed on. Fair enough. All right, Ian Ballantyne, thank you so much for talking to us on War College. The new book is The Deadly Trade. Yeah, it's not out yet. It's a few months before it's out, but it's. Uh, I've just kind of finished doing the heavy lifting on it, and we're working on tying up the loose ends. So, yeah, it's a bit of an epic. Uh, yeah, I wanted to get you while you were still in submarine headspace. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah, for three years I've been in submarine submarine world. Well, it is a fascinating world, and thank you so much for telling us about it. That's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's show. War College was created by Jason Fields and Craig Hedick. It's hosted by Matthew Galt, who also wrangles our guests. It's produced by me, Bethel Hopte. If you like our show and want to support us, please, as always, give us a stellar review on iTunes. It very much helps other people find the show. If you want to give us ideas for future shows, please tweet at us. We're at war underscore college. We have taken your suggestions in the past. Speaking of the past, we have a ton of archived episodes. Go ahead and check those out and join us next week for another fresh episode. Thanks. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.